0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast on behalf of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ben Goldfarb. Today we'll be speaking with Douglas M. Thompson, author of The Quest for the Golden Trout. In The Quest for the Golden Trout, Thompson turns a critical eye to America's rivers and examines how fishermen, like me admittedly, have transformed our waterways by introducing millions of non-native, hatchery-raised trout and physically altering the structure of rivers to make them more conducive to the fish we like to catch. As Thompson reveals, these actions, though often well-intentioned, have had some profoundly negative ecological consequences. Like any great work of environmental history, the quest for the golden trout forces us to examine our own culpability in historical changes to land, or in this case, water. So, without further ado, Douglas M. Thompson, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a joy to be on here. Great. And
0: Doug, perhaps you can begin by, by briefly telling the audience a bit about yourself and, and explaining what led you to write this book.
1: Sure. Uh, I am what's called a fluvial geomorphologist, which is a um, scientist that most people haven't heard of before. It's actually someone who specializes in uh, river systems, and in particular, uh, the, the physical uh, nature of rivers, how they evolve through time, how they change um, their physical habitat. Uh, And I've been doing uh, work on um, river restoration and and working on habitat issues for a while. Uh, And as I did more and more research, I was um, very interested in in the role that the trout hatcheries uh, and trout management was having on the way the rivers in general were being approached uh, and became a little bit concerned about uh, what I consider to be kind of an overemphasis on fishing issues uh, relative to uh, general kind of Uh, river health and ecosystem health. Uh, So that was uh, one of the things that started to really um, pique my interest. The more I looked into it, the more um, I became aware of certain things I hadn't realized, uh, even though I was, you know, studying rivers for for more than uh, two decades now. So figured if I was being surprised by some of these uh, pieces of information, then I should probably uh, write a book and let people know uh, what's going on in, in some of these rivers.
0: Great. So let's talk about hatcheries. During, during the course of your book, you actually visit a number of a number of fish hatcheries. Um, so let me let me start by asking what what exactly is a fish hatchery, and, and, and what do these facilities look like?
1: Sure. So um, fish hatcheries essentially a uh, place. You know, in the case of the trout, which is what the book is about, is a place where trout are raised from egg. Um, all the way to the point where they are ready for release into the river and the point at which they're ready for release uh, varies a little bit. So if we're talking about something like salmon restoration, that's usually pretty young. But in the case of trout for, um, for use for trout fishing, they're actually usually raised in, uh, for 18 to 26 months. Uh, so they're raised really to full size and then they're stocked in the river at that point. Uh, The hatcheries have slightly different looks to them depending on which site you visit, but for the most part they have these um, concrete tanks that are either uh, elongated, um, kind of concrete channels uh, where water is flowing um, in one direction through um, these tanks, or they might have uh, round tanks where water kind of swirls around. In both cases the water is going at a pretty slow um, speed. Uh, the fish are um, in pretty crowded conditions in these um, in these hatcheries. Uh, they're being fed uh, pellets um, that um, are put in the tanks in a number of different ways, mostly kind of automated systems. Uh, and there's oftentimes uh, um, some oxygen to augment the water in the hatcheries. Okay, and
0: and how how widespread is the is the use of hatcheries
1: in the United uh, it's States? Ve- it's very widespread. There are. Um, um, literally um, thousands of, of hatcheries in the United States. We're, we're stocking approximately 150 million trout every year in the United States. So obviously um, there are a lot of hatcheries to supply that um, that demand. And um, pretty much most states have um, a state hatchery. Um, there are federal hatcheries run by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well. So there, there are lots of hatcheries out there. Yeah. If you,
0: if you went out on any river in Connecticut and, and dropped in a line, I mean, how, li- how likely is it that you'd be fishing for a, a hatchery-raised fish, you know?
1: Um, it, on the bigger systems, uh, if you catch a fish, it's almost um, definitely a, uh, a hatchery-raised fish. Um, fortunately, some of the smaller streams uh, do have some wild brook trout, which is uh, the only native um, trout to um, New England uh excuse me in the streams that there is also a lake trout that's native uh but uh, again it, you're not that likely to find those on the bigger um bigger brooks and bigger rivers um those would be almost exclusively stocked fish
0: so why does the the prevalence of hatcheries matter why does it matter that we're supplementing rivers with all of these all of these captive raised fish
1: well, there's a, a few different concerns. Um, one is that the, a lot of the fish that are being released are actually not native to the, uh, the waters uh, where they're released. And so they cause some, um, some competition with the native species. Uh, for in, instance, in New England, uh, we have um, native Atlantic salmon. And uh, in a lot of systems, we've been trying to restore those Atlantic salmon runs. For instance, the Connecticut River watershed and some of the local um, watersheds in, in Massachusetts and so forth. Unfortunately, the stocked fish actually compete directly with um, these anadromous fish. Uh, and so there's you know, that concern. There's other species uh, of concern that uh, are being competed with. In other parts of the country, we have uh, native species of cutthroat trout that interbreed with the stocked trout. Uh, and so we start to lose the, um, the kind of purebred uh, genetics of these uh, cutthroat trout. And there have actually been some subspecies of cutthroat trout that have been um, interbred into extinction. Uh, so that's certainly one, um, concern. Uh, and then, as well, that the, just the, the hatchery raising um, of the fish does actually create some pollution issues. Uh, the hatcheries themselves do have pollutants, uh, both nutrient pollutants and also medicines, uh, disinfectants and fungicides, uh, antibiotics that are um, going into watersheds. And the fish themselves, um, because they are bioaccumulating uh, certain toxins like dioxin and uh, PCBs, when they're stocked in the rivers, they actually are uh, a source of contamination, uh, the the actual stocked trout wow how
0: how just just how can i mean how contaminated are these trout how how much of a a biohazard are these these pcb fish yeah there are um
1: there are there are health concerns um and so there are um advisories on how many fish uh, people should eat in a year Uh, and it varies but it's somewhere between six and twelve so uh, there are actually um uh, catch limits that the anglers have so they can easily in a couple of days catch uh, enough fish that they basically shouldn't consume any more trout over the course of um, course of a year so again the, these health warnings warn um, between about six to twelve fish a year should be uh, consumed so that probably gives you an idea um, what we're you know when we're stocking 150 million of these uh, into rivers every year what we're um, produce what we're introducing to the river systems.
0: Right. I know there, there have been some cons- some concerns as well about the about the the genetics of hatchery raised fish. Can you characterize yes. those those worries?
1: Sure. So you know, a hatchery is not exactly um, much like a river. So um, the, the hatchery fish basically are raised in fairly slow moving water. Uh, they're they're completely featureless. Uh, as I kind of mentioned before, they're, they're just these concrete channels that really have no features in them at all. So um, the fish basically, as they're living in these um, in these um, hatchery runs, basically generation after generation of fish are raised and they, they essentially start to um, become a little bit more genetically programmed to be successful in a hatchery. So uh, that's not necessarily what's going to make a fish successful in a river environment. There's a number of specific issues that happen. Um, there was a, actually a recent study um, done that, that the um, hatchery fish have um, slower burst speed, so they don't have a, that kind of quick... Um, Swimming speed to um, elude predators, uh, hatchery-raised fish are more likely to feed at the surface uh, and feed aggressively. That's probably because of the way they're fed in the hatcheries, which makes them, again, more prone to be um, caught by um, native predators. They are um, also uh, have abrasion of their fins from kind of sweeping their tails against um, the, the concrete and also being kind of bitten at from uh, other trout. Um, there are... Um, some other concerns as well, uh, in, including um, um, some, some specific breeds that are kind of raised for, um, uh, for kind of an interest' sake. So there are these strange coloration versions that are raised. Um, uh, there's a golden version, which is what the, the title of the book gets its name from. Uh, of a, it's a golden version of a rainbow trout. So it's not a true golden trout. It's a golden rainbow trout. And it's this orange-colored fish. And we even raise albino fish uh, again, just for fishing interest's sake, uh, not for any sort of ecological reason.
0: So, the so the golden trout was a that was a natural mutation that was subsequently bred by hatcheries.
1: That is correct. It was, um, you know, slightly orange-colored fish um, initially noticed in a hatchery in West Virginia. And um, instead of just kind of noticing it as an interesting anomaly, the, the hatchery essentially then worked very hard to selectively breed that fish. And now there are a number of states, including West Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania, that are um, specifically breeding this um, golden trout, sometimes also called the palomino trout, although that's a slightly different version. Um, that I've also heard um, of these fish being raised in California, but they're basically a bright orange kind of goldish colored fish um, that are, again, raised exclusively for the idea of kind of generating interest in fishing with these um, somewhat odd-looking fish.
0: Yeah, and why did, why did you choose that particular odd-looking fish to to represent your book, to, to be the title?
1: Right. Well, the, you know, I try – in some ways, it's – a you know, the book is a fairly heavy topic, and, and so there's certainly – um, some some topics that are kind of hard to digest. And so I tried to have some humor in there as much as possible just to uh, make the book more interesting to read. And um, so The Golden Trout was actually a, a, a uh, kind of reference to Monty Python. I, I certainly enjoyed many Monty Python movies, including um, Monty Python's The Holy Grail. So The, the Golden Trout was really <laughs> meant as a metaphor for the, the Holy Grail, this idea that there's this kind of magical uh, fish out there that we're somehow trying to um, find, and, and, and in some ways, it's kind of this quest that is probably not going to be very successful, and in and, and many ways, maybe kind of a waste of, of time.
0: Are there are there hatchery management practices that you consider uh, more more appropriate, more in ecological balance? I guess thinking about how uh, you know we can reform the management of these of these fisheries and rivers, you know, do, do is there is there any role for hatcheries to play?
1: Um, I, I think there probably has to be a role for hatcheries. Um, I, you know, I think the, the book, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fish. I'm not saying we shouldn't have hatcheries. But I'm, what I'm asking for is a little bit more effort placed on um, focus on native species and, and some more preservation of um, some more pristine watersheds. Uh, but I think there's going to have to be some sort of balance um, between rivers. It might be more of a working type river where um, because there's a lot of heavy fishing practice, there might be need, need to be some hatcheries. But certainly I think there needs to be also um, equal emphasis placed on rivers where we're not um, stocking these fish, where we're, we're looking more, more natural processes. And um, in, terms of the, in terms of the hatcheries, basically there are studies done, more scientific kind of smaller scale studies showing that we can um, do things to, to help the, um, the, the trout being raised, be a little bit more predator wary and so forth. Uh, the problem is it's it's expensive to scale those uh, practices up, and a lot of the hatcheries are really looking for um, just mass production. And, and, uh, and visiting some of these and talking to some of the hatchery staff, I mean, they, they really are talking about uh, meeting quotas and so forth. So it's very much about producing the, the maximum number of fish uh, for the least amount of cost. So that's certainly not very conducive to quality, uh, as you can imagine. So uh, I, I think there needs to be a call for better quality fish and not just quantity.
0: Are there any particular states or, or hatcheries or entities that you think are doing a, a better job of, of uh, having their priorities in the right place?
1: Uh, well, I think a place like Montana has is, is, um, really been at the forefront. Montana has been working very hard to um, not stock in, in rivers and try to have wild fish uh, as much as possible. Now, not all those wild fish are necessarily native, so there are some issues with that. But um, they are focusing most of their stocking efforts in reservoirs and areas that are already probably artificial in many ways. I think probably Montana is probably leading the way uh, at this point. Okay, so how
0: did we? I mean, how did we get to where we are? You know, what are the some of the? I mean, in, in your book, you 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 trace the historical trends and and uh, and factors that led us to this place where we're, we're pumping in all of these hatchery hatchery raised fish into our rivers. What uh, maybe maybe you can maybe you
1: can explain it to us now? Right. So the the I think back a um, hundred plus years ago, the idea was that if we could spread new species to new rivers, that this was uh, going to improve on nature. There was a um, a general feeling of scientific management that um, nature was inefficient, and that humans could help to design better ecosystems. So there was a lot of work done to bring. Um, Species like brown trout from Europe over and stocked them throughout the United States. Uh, uh, rainbow trout were brought from the West Coast and stocked uh, in other areas, including all over the East Coast. There were species of East Coast Fish brought to the West Coast. So there's a a lot of this effort, including um, food sources. So there were um, different food fish and um, some non-native mollusks and snails, which we now have great concern about, which were stocked widely uh, in the 1880s and so forth. Again, with this kind of idea, this kind of um, somewhat uh, uh, false sense that we could somehow improve on, on uh, nature and it really was uh, at a time when we didn't fully understand the issue of genetics, we didn't really understand what, gen- uh, what DNA was and so forth we didn't understand uh, how interdependent a lot of uh, species were in ecosystems so we now realize that there are a lot of problems when we start to play around with uh, exotic invasive species and so forth. So that's that's kind of how it all started. Um, the, um, there was a lot of um, interest in fishing that started to, to generate um, around that time and moving forward. Uh, and as things like automobiles and trains took more and more people out to rivers, there was a greater fishing pressure. Uh, people, um, some wealthy individuals started to, privatized many river systems as a result of that, and um, fewer and fewer places were open for public fishing. Pretty soon the fishing wasn't very good, and so hatcheries started to become the solution um, to um, small numbers of fish being caught. Uh, and so the hatcheries are dumping in many, many of these um, exotic invasive species, trying to supplement um, what was in the river systems. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the, the results weren't that promising. They, um, after um, several decades of doing this, people realized that, that really we weren't kind of solving the problem. They started going into a little bit more heavy-handed management of the rivers themselves by um, trying to um, actually physically modify the rivers, what was called um, habitat improvement um, they tried to put in these different kinds of structures, which are um, really a very engineered, against solution with this, this whole idea that humans could do a better job than nature. Uh, and, and it kind of just kept spiraling in that way, that, that rivers became less and less uh, a natural wild area and more and more a human construct. Uh, and again, that's really one of the themes of the book, is that a lot of people like to visit rivers, uh, myself included. A lot of anglers like to visit r- rivers with this sense of connecting to nature. But... As uh, humans became more and more interested in improving fishing, uh, many rivers are less wild and less like they uh, really were uh, when the time when when trout were were swimming and, and uh, health, healthy populations throughout the regions.
0: Right. You just you just referenced the the rise of of private wealthy fishing clubs, um, which is a, yes. a, a theme a theme that runs throughout your book. Maybe you can talk a little bit about about those clubs. Who was in them? What where they existed? What they did.
1: Right, so the, the, there's been a, a long history of, of wealthy fishing clubs in Europe, and uh, when some of the, the nouveau rich in the United States wanted to try to help establish their credentials, uh, they began to form up as uh, fishing clubs. Uh, so there were some very famous fishing clubs on uh, Long Island, for instance, that had some of the, the wealthiest individuals you can imagine: uh, Carnegie, uh, Vanderbilts, um, uh, so, some big, big names, um, Kennedys, uh, and so forth. So, um, and and one big. Um, name, uh, one big family name as well, that was very important, was Roosevelt's uh, and including, um, uh, you know, fathers and uncles of the two presidents. So that that ended up um, being important, I think, in the way the federal government eventually got involved. Uh, These fishing clubs spread to other parts of uh, the Northeast, including Pennsylvania um, up into the Catskills, a number of big important clubs uh, formed up in the Adirondacks and throughout um, New England as well. So these Fishing clubs became um, areas uh, mostly for wealthy individuals, uh, and uh, s- some of them were very, very exclusive, uh, and um, people basically used it as a, as a as kind of status symbol, uh, is used it as a way to kind of um, meet up in and, and, um, social settings with um, some of the wealthiest individuals. Uh, and uh, there, one of the things I, I raised, which is kind of interesting, there's, there's been a lot of um, Kind of praise for these fishing clubs for preserving land, and yes, in many ways, they did preserve land, which is wonderful, but a lot of the people actually involved in the fishing clubs were um, involved in some of the the problems that really resulted in the loss of a lot of the, um, a lot of the river uh, environments that that naturally would have been uh, supportive of trout so uh, people involved in the railroad industry, people involved in major manufacturing, building dams and and uh, polluting waters in a lot of ways, and so there's kind of a this 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 strange uh, situation where people were getting very rich off of kind of um, stripping the land of its resources and causing a lot of problems to river systems, but then they used that wealth to buy some private um, private estates and private fishing club lands. Uh, that now are some of the few places left that um, are in better, better situations, although there are certainly some problems in those lands as well.
0: Right. One of the, one of the <clears throat> really remarkable episodes that you detail in your book that I, I'd, I'd never heard of that's, that was fascinating um, was how one, one club in particular modified their stretch of river in such a way that, that they produced a, a catastrophic flood that killed, that killed many people. What, what happened there?
1: yeah so the, um many people have probably heard of the Johnstown flood uh this was essentially it, it, the the part of the story that's not that well um known is that the um the the flood itself was caused by a dam that ruptured and the the dam was um essentially um owned by a private fishing club at the time again um some very famous um steel magnets like um, andrew Carnegie um and Frick were uh involved and essentially they were um Part of this this group that bought this this dam, there was a nice reservoir upstream that they used for, for fishing and for, for uh, sailing purposes. Uh, it wasn't really a high priority to them, um, so they didn't put a lot of effort into the maintenance of the dam. Uh, there were warnings about the dam um, uh, basically being poorly, um, poorly maintained. There were problems with erosion. Uh, there was an outlet, um, which would have been an important safety feature on the um, dam that was not properly maintained. Uh, and then during a heavy rainstorm, uh, which was probably exacerbated by the fact that the local watershed had been, uh, mostly logged. And so there was a lot more runoff. Um, uh, the, the dam was overtopped by flow that eroded away the dam. And we had this massive, um, this massive flood that, that headed down and, um, resulted in, uh, one of the biggest loss of life ever in the United States for a natural disaster. And, um, the the sad thing is that there was um, a trial, uh, and, and this was brought to court. But the the courts decided that this was an act of God, even though there was clearly some negligence in the maintenance of the dam. Hmm. <clears throat> so
0: not not only were these were these. Uh, private fishing clubs really influential. I mean, certain certain individuals were were hugely important in shaping the way rivers and, and fisheries are managed. And, and there's some really uh, vivid and, and memorable characters in in your book. Um, yeah, none none more so than than Edward Hewitt. Um, yes. and, and maybe maybe you could talk about about Hewitt for a, for a minute. Who who was he exactly? And and how did he affect river management?
1: Right. So Edward Hewitt was um, kind of one of the the group of um, New York um, industrialites who was using kind of fishing as a way to kind of promote their own social status. Uh, His um, father had started kind of a rags to riches story, um, married into the the Cooper family, um, who was uh, uh, the grandfather was, again, a rags to riches story, but by that point was very, very uh, wealthy. So, um, Edward Hewitt ended up growing up in a fairly, um, sheltered, very wealthy, uh, environment. Uh, they had a, um, a large, large, uh, mansion out in, um, New Jersey at Ringwood. Um, it's, uh, it's a place that you can go visit now. It's, it's an enormous property, um, big house and so forth. Um. His uh, father uh, and uncle were um, both mayors of New York City and were very important in uh, iron um, development uh, for the Civil War. So Edward kind of grew up with this this um, this wealth and so forth, and in many ways, a kind of a spoiled uh, spoiled upbringing. Is as, as you read his aunt, uh, autobiographies, uh, he um, did go to uh, school and went to graduate school as well, but really didn't make much of a name for himself um, in in industry. But became very well known as an angler and uh, used his wealth um, to start to modify major areas of the Neversink River. Uh, wrote some books about this uh, that became um, pretty well read. And that those books ended up being kind of the, the, the first kind of documented um, cases of, of using these, these structures, um, these habitat structures I mentioned before, to start to physically change the way rivers um, look at the way they, they operate. Um, This was picked up by another very important uh, individual, Carl Hubbs, who was a scientist uh, at the University of Michigan at the time. He ended up uh, becoming one of the most famous fisheries biologists uh, in the U.S. He read some of um, uh, Hewitt's early work and um, became acquainted with some of the um, fisheries um, people who were uh, in New York working for the state government at the time. This started to blossom into this um, research program at University of Michigan that was quickly picked up by the Civilian Conservation Corps by uh, the Roosevelt's, by um, FDR in particular. And um, this ended up really changing from just a small private uh, undertaking to a federal investment with um, Civilian Conservation Corps uh, dollars in in, uh, a fairly short period of time. And that's where this modification of rivers suddenly became a nationwide massive undertaking. So when you talk about the the modification of rivers and the the introduction
0: of structures, what sorts of structures and and what are how 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 do fishermen attempt to modify a river to make it more conducive to, to fish?
1: So the initial concern was probably um, you know well founded. There were there were problems with. Um, logging and so forth that had caused some, some concerns to that rivers were being kind of inundated with sediment and didn't have the habitat they used to. Uh, and so the, the solution people came up with was this, this kind of fixed in place type of designs. And there's a lot of different designs, but there's a few groups that you can kind of uh, lump things into. One is referred to as a, a deflector structure. And as the name kind of implies, the idea is to deflect the current. So it's something that sits on the side of the channel typically uh, and kind of forces the water to flow around it. And in doing so, that helps to scour out a deeper area of the channel, um, a deep pool area. Another type of structure is actually a small dam. So although large dams, it causes all kinds of problems to rivers. Um, the hope was that these smaller dams would actually create, again, kind of some scour and some, some deeper water. And then the last kind of big group of structures are called cover structures. And the idea is that fish also need places to hide underneath. So these um, structures were built um out of wood and rock and initially they were built um you know somewhat um Uh, And a flimsy sort of design. And so uh, quickly, instead of becoming about habitat and ecosystem, it it quickly became about engineering. So they started building bigger and stronger structures that would withstand uh, the currents and so forth. The problem is that when you really look um, at the history of how a river generates good aquatic habitat, it's really a dynamic um, process. So rivers like to move side to side. Rivers um, like to create scour in some areas and deposit uh, sediment in other areas. Uh, trees and so forth falling into the river are actually very important for covering for creating cover habitat, creating scour uh, and so what you actually would like to see is a river that has some kind of motion side to side some some vertical motion as well, and that these things kind of have this this long term kind of regenerative sort of habitat so when you start to instead replace this with a fixed in place type of um, structures. Uh, You're really actually um, working against nature, you're working against the natural processes that should generate some very good habitat. So um, that's really uh, the concern. And it's unfortunately something that's continued into uh, the current day in in many cases. One of the most common approaches to restore rivers nowadays is called natural channel design. And again, it is a very heavily reliant on these fixed in place structures, uh, which you know, in some cases, might be um, warranted if you're talking about in a city environment where you don't want the river to move and undermine a road or a, a, a building. That's one thing, but they're still used in places which are more natural and really probably should allow the river to to behave in a more natural sort of fun- uh, way. Hmm. So, <clears throat> so I, I guess given
0: given what we know about about the natural behavior of rivers, why why is natural channel design so so popular today?
1: Uh, it's popular partly because it's um, a, a fairly easy kind of cookbook type uh, approach. And so um, the idea is that people go to these um, these short courses and get training for um, a few weeks, and then they're kind of certified to go out and do these projects. So it, it doesn't require really um, the the full background and how rivers behave and evolve over time. And one of the most interesting things I found out, I certainly was aware of natural channel design and and the way that those practices were being conducted um, today. But when I went back and and did the research, it was very fascinating to to learn that um, Carl Hubbs, working with the U.S. Forest Service back in the 1930s, had also basically had these short courses uh, where where scientists uh, forest service um rangers and so forth were being trained for short periods of time week two week long sessions and then being um being kind of certified to go out uh, nationwide to do these projects so it's it's um again uh, it's kind of that legacy of of um short-term training and um being able to follow a very simple formula so that, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to follow and so forth. Um, and so it, it's unfortunately not really what's in the best interest of the river systems. Has there been a lot of, a lot of pushback from, you know, from
0: fluvial geomorphologists like yourself against natural channel design?
1: There definitely has. Uh, there's actually was a, a position statement, um, a group of fluvial geor- geomorphologists like myself um, with the um, geological side of America, actually had a position statement come out um, a little over 10 years ago um, with the concerns about the fact that we weren't really considering the, the history of a river. If you, if you think about uh, the rivers and in, in, in throughout the country there, we have, a, unfortunately, a long legacy of, of humans impacting the rivers. And so certainly I think the first step we'd like to think about uh, understanding how to, to, to fix these problems is to figure out what, are the problems in the river themselves? So, how has the river changed over time? What are the, the specific causes of the, the problems in the river? So that's what geomorphologists would like to see happen: is to, this an initial study to figure out what really is it wrong with the river, and, and kind of go with a systematic, historical approach to understand how the river changed. That's not something that is done with the uh, natural channel design to any degree at all. Typically, they just pick a river that they think looks pretty good, and they Essentially, try to make a copy uh, of that river uh, when restoring a different river. So uh, it's it's trying to kind of do a, a cheap Xerox kind of copy of a river, as opposed to really understanding why there are problems in that river in the first place.
0: Right. But uh, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these these problems and the, and the history of alteration goes back so long that I'd, I'd imagine it's very difficult to understand, uh, you know, exactly what's what's happening in the river. I mean, it's I mean it's been it's
1: been happening for so long now, right? It's, it's very difficult to figure that out. Um, but certainly I think there's, um, some hope, um, there are certainly a lot of geomorphologists working on that. It's something that, um, I'm working on right now with the, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and some other groups up in Maine to try to get a sense of what did the habitat used to look like for the Atlantic salmon and other anatomist fish in that, uh, ecosystem. I think the first question is, you know, what did, what did the rivers look like, um, before humans came along and then we can understand what they look like now and then we can start to understand basically what kind of changes have taken place and so uh, there are people who are doing that but it's you know it's a little bit more involved process and it's not something you're going to learn in a week or two of, of courses uh, doing natural channel design you need someone who's has the background to really do that sort of investigation right so your your book is you know is in is in, in many ways a
0: I don't, I don't want to use the word the word takedown exactly, but uh, you know, but certainly has some has some some harsh words both for the you know the sort of the natural channel design uh, apostles and and also uh, you know trout fishermen and their and their uh, you know in, inflated regard for their own sport and and their influence on rivers. Have you have you gotten any feedback from any of these people, any any fishermen or or uh, natural channel design proponents?
1: Um, I haven't heard much from the natural channel design folks yet. I, I certainly have heard from po- folks who are. Uh, have concerns with natural channel design. They're very happy with the book. Uh, I think the angler group is a, is a kind of a, a group that I was hoping really to reach. And I was kind of waiting with bated breath to see what kind of reaction I've had. And so far uh, it's, it's been pretty positive actually. So I, I think that um, trout anglers, again, it, the, the rivers are going to be in big trouble if trout anglers don't care about this issue and these issues I've raised. And so uh, you know the the um, the folks who have read it um, have understood that I'm not trying to say we shouldn't fish that we're not you know that, that that's not the problem the problem is the way we're approaching this and so um, there were uh, there, there was actually an article came out in the Hartford Current um, several months ago that kind of painted me in a little bit more antagonistic sort of fashion than I think um, the book really comes off. And um, there were some anglers that kind of um, were kind of displeased with with what um, was said in the article and and what they thought I was trying to say. I gave a talk actually uh, at a um, library in in Newport, Rhode Island, and a few folks showed up. Um, They initially started off kind of um, very skeptical. By the end of the talk, they were a little bit more open-minded. A few of the individuals bought the book uh, and including, um, a, um, a president of one of the local chapters of Trout Unlimited. He read the book and it actually invited me to, uh, Trout Unlimited, um, chapter so I could talk. Uh, he, he said it was a very important book. He thought that all the members of his chapter should read it. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, that's what I'm hoping for. I'm, I'm hoping that there are folks who understand that I'm not saying that trout fishing is the problem. What I'm saying is that there are concerns with the way that we're doing this and that, um, you know, if we really care about rivers, uh, which I think most trout anglers do, then we need to make some some calls for some changes, um, because right now the the state and federal governments are under a lot of pressure. Uh, they're not necessarily hearing the other side of the coin in terms of, um, you know, preserve the rivers themselves and, you know, concern about the rivers themselves. They're mostly hearing about, you know, what the fishing is like and so forth. So they're they're pretty focused right now on uh, on the fishing in, in many, uh, many cases. Right, it, you yourself
0: are a, a lapsed fisherman, right, or a former yes. a former fisherman? When when was the last time
1: you fished? Uh, I last fished in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, and and that was. Um, Partly because I, I started growing concerned again in the way that the um, the trout fishing was um, kind of driving um, decision making, and and unfortunately I, I realized that if I'm buying a, a a fishing license, then I'm buying into the system because the the money for the fishing license is being funneled, funneled back to. The state agencies and so forth, uh, and being funneled back into things like um, the stocking practices. So, you know, personally for me, the decision was I, I was a little less, con- I was a little more concerned about those issues, and so I decided that you know I, I still love to see trout. I still um, you know I try to bring an underwater camera, take pictures of them. I still enjoy them in a lot of ways. But for me, I didn't want to purchase the fishing license and, and continue to support um, the, the, the practices that I consider to be a little problematic. So that was a personal decision I made, um, back in the nineties.
0: Okay. And there, there are a, a couple, is uh, it at least one scene involving, involving your, your, your daughter fishing, right? Uh, does she, yes. does, does she, does she, does she fish at all herself now?
1: No, she, so she did, she was very interested in, in um, learning to fish and, um, Uh, Her her grandfather, who has since passed away, um, took her out um, fishing for um, uh, two days in a row, and she she did enjoy that very, very much. Um, She's now – you know, she knows about the book. She's read the book, and and at this point, um, her decision is is not to fish. But I certainly would not stand in the way if she decides that she wants to do that. You know, I – Fully understand that. I, again, I don't. Um, I don't fault anyone for wanting to fish. I, t- I fully understand it. I fished since I was a kid, um, and I, I still love fishing. I, and I hope I can fish someday in the future. But I just don't feel at this point that I'm, I'm very comfortable with um, with what that entails in terms of the again investment in um, the state and federal agencies.
0: Fair enough. What's your, your your personal favorite body of water? If you know, if you if you could spend if you could spend the rest of your life exploring and, and studying a, a single stream, where where would it be?
1: Um, it, it would probably be um, the, the place I did my research as a, a graduate student uh, in Colorado. Um, I, I really uh, like North Saint Vrain Creek. Uh, it's a uh, a beautiful uh, river that basically um, is is pretty. Uh, far from from uh, houses and roads in most places, it um, it, it begins in Wild Basin and Rocky Mountain National Park, so you can imagine that's a pretty uh, beautiful location. And then extends through this, this fabulous canyon uh, for miles and miles before finally, um, unfortunately, popping out into a reservoir down near um, the foothills, down near uh, Lyons, um, Colorado. It's a, It's a... Fairly well known um, creek, I think, for many anglers. But there's a lot of places along there that, that anglers probably have not uh, visited before because they're they're remote areas. How, how about closer to home? What are some what are so many, some of your favorite rivers in, in Connecticut? Sure, I um, I do a lot of work on the Salmon River and um, some of the watersheds in the Salmon River in um, in Connecticut. And uh, again, it's a, a river with a lot of potential. Right now, the potential is not entirely reached. Uh, we're unfortunately losing the salmon. So it's it's going to be a very sad uh, day when the Salmon River no longer has salmon in it. Um, but um, it is a, a beautiful watershed in many other uh, uh, many other ways. And so I've done a lot of work there over the years. It's also a place that has again a long history of humans um, uh, kind of modifying the river. And so you can actually still walk along parts of it um, upstream in an area called Blackledge um, River uh, area of the Veterans Fishing Area. So that's part of the Salmon River watershed. And you can still walk along there and find structures that were put in uh, place uh, in the 1930s by the Civilian Conservation Corps. And it kind of shows that these, these structures that were put in place are there for a long, long time. And unfortunately, one of the, the problems is that um, they've they've basically limited the the um, river's ability to modify itself. And they've actually impacted uh, tree growth along the sides of the rivers. So that's actually resulted in a long-term negative impact. So, um, But it's, again... Uh, it, it is a beautiful watershed. I, I, you know, I have hopes for it in the future to become even more beautiful.
0: Doug, what's the current state of salmon restoration in the Connecticut River? Didn't the federal government just remove its its funding?
1: Yeah. So the federal funding, uh, the federal government has kind of pulled the plug um, when we had um, Hurricane Irene come along. The, one of the major. Um, hatcheries uh, up in Vermont that fed um, a lot of the salmon for the, the Connecticut River watershed as a whole was damaged by that flood um, in the White River uh, area of Vermont. So the federal government has decided to kind of pull its its funding there. It's, it's um, you know, also has um, the future doesn't look very good for the Merrimack River up in Massachusetts. And it's decided to focus most of its interest instead on anatomous uh, other anadromous fish in the Connecticut watershed, but also the salmon, it's going to focus more on Maine. Um, states are still um, trying to keep the salmon restoration uh, program uh, moving ahead. But the fact is the numbers are very, very uh, low. Uh, you know, right now, 100 returns in the entire Connecticut River watershed would be considered, you know, a pretty normal or good year. So it's wow. it's the state of the salmon are, are pretty, pretty dismal right now in the um, Connecticut River watershed.
0: Well, Doug, I hate to end on such a somber note, but it's a sobering book. I consider myself both a conservationist and an angler, and the quest for the golden trout certainly made me think long and hard about how to reconcile those two pursuits. Doug, I want to thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network today and for writing such a compelling and hugely important piece
1: of work. Well, thank you very much. It was a a joy to write it, and uh, I hope people do enjoy it. And again, i just trying to, to open people's eyes. I'm certainly not trying to tell anyone uh, how to live their life, but um, certainly I, I hope it raises some awareness.
0: I think it certainly achieves that. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, Doug, and that's today's program. Tune in next month for new books and environmental studies. Till next time, I'm your host, Ben Goldfarb, on behalf of the New Books Network.